Amen. Kids on the rock, you guys can go. Right after service is over, right after we pray, we're going to, if you're a member, just stay for, it's going to take 20 seconds. We're going to vote on the budget for 2024. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Today is the last day in Hebrews uh, until after the holidays. I seriously considered just putting off Hebrews 4, 1 through 11 uh, until after Christmas, New Year, and start preaching Advent and Incarnation and Christmas and but the point of this section, Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, is so interwoven with last week's text that I was afraid if we separate them by four, three, four weeks, um, we, we, wouldn't, we would miss the point of the author. So if you're visiting, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we go straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section. So that's what we're doing in the book of Hebrews now. Um, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, make sure you, you keep it open, keep it in your lap. Turn it to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Uh, I'm going to be putting several different verses on the screen, but I want you to have that in front of you. Today, in Hebrews 4, uh, verses 1 through 11, is actually a continuation of the argument of last week, three, chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Uh, and if you haven't heard that sermon, I would, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because there's a lot I'm going to say today as we talk about these verses that is um, linked to what we talked about in the last section. Actually, chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13 is really one argument. So you're kind of jumping right into the middle of it. Um, here in ver chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the point, what we're going to be looking at is that we are called to rest while we strive to enter God's rest. I know that sounds contradictory, but it's just the beginning of the sermon, so you've got to give me some time. <laughs> Remember, the, the book of Hebrews is written to professing Hebrew Christians who were being tempted. They were tempted to turn back to Judaism because following Christ had brought them hardship. It brought them trial. It brought them suffering and persecution. And they knew, these Hebrew Christians, professing Hebrew Christians, they knew that if they turned back and went back to Judaism, back to the old religion, back to the old ways, all these trials, all these hardships, all these persecutions would stop and life would just be so much easier. And the cry of the book of Hebrews is it's not worth it. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than all else, including a life in this world free from suffering. So the writer of Hebrews continually warns the Hebrews and us to watch your heart. Examine your life. Guard yourself, he told us last week, against a heart of unbelief. Last week, we saw this warning from Hebrews 3, uh, 7 through 19. And the writer used the example of Israel's rebellion and unbelief in the wilderness as they came out of Egypt. And he used that pattern, that example, to warn the, the believers not to turn from Christ. And there, in that text, he quoted Psalm 95. We read it last week in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. He's quoting Psalm 95, but he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion 
on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And we talked about all of those verses last week. Talking about how Israel refused to enter into the promised land when God brought them right up to the doorstep to it. Only Joshua and Caleb actually believed God. You know, the 12 spies were sent in and only those two men came back saying, yes, let's go into the land. God has given it to us. All the rest of Israel refused to go into land. They were scared of the people there. So God turned them around and marched them into the wilderness for 40 years. And of that generation that came out of Egypt with praise and singing and glorifying God, only two men over the age of 20 entered into the land 40 years later, Joshua and Caleb, the ones who believed. Now, using this example, the writer also warned the Christians, warned us in verses 12 uh, through 15 or 14 in Hebrews chapter 3. I'm still doing reviews, so stay with me. He says, because of that, because of the pattern, the example we have of those in the wilderness, you, you take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And once again, we explained all these verses last week, but make sure today as we enter into chapter four, notice those two instructions. He told them, take care, literally watch, look out, be on guard, keep watch over your hearts and exhort one another daily to keep from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we saw that last week. We also can't say, well, I hear the warning, but that can't happen to me. I know my heart. No, verses 16 through 18 in chapter 3 showed us that all the people who died in the wilderness under judgment, they came out of Egypt with great glory and praise and singing. They declared that they were God's people and experienced the miraculous works of God. They even agreed to be God's covenant people at Mount Sinai. And despite all of that, they turned from God in unbelief and they died in judgment in the wilderness. The last part of chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 said, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? And then verse 19 said, So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The writer showed us the actual problem. This was pretty much the point of last week's sermon. Israel's problem in the wilderness was not that they didn't hold on to the Lord good enough. It was not that they didn't obey God good enough. Their problem was they never believed. They never trusted God, even as they came out of Egypt singing praise on the other side of the Red Sea. The trials and the hardships on the journey between Egypt and the doorstep of the promised land revealed the true nature of their hearts. They didn't enter God's rest because of unbelief. You with me? Say I'm with you whether you are or not. Okay, good. Now as we begin chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews turns to show us how we strive to enter into God's rest. 
Now, we're going to go a piece at a time in, through verses 1 through 11, uh, taking a section at a time, and you've you got to really get some coffee if you need it. It's easy to get lost in this section. It's easy to chase after rabbits. Uh, so stay with me, and we're going to examine it very carefully. The first thing he says after he tells all this about the wilderness generation and says they couldn't enter because of unbelief, the first thing he says in chapter 4 is, therefore, he's telling, us not, he's telling us to fear failing to enter God's rest. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, here's the command, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, literally it says gospel, that's the word, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened, Joshua and Caleb. For we who have believed enter that rest. That's the first part of verse 3. The first thing I want you to notice is that the promise of entering his rest still stands today. It wasn't just about them entering into the land. The promise of rest is still available to the readers of Hebrews today. So he says, while the promise still stands, he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The call to fear is not just for the wavering Hebrews, wondering what they should do, thinking it might be easier to turn away from Jesus and save themselves all this trial. He includes himself. Do you see it? Let us fear. The writer of Hebrews is saying, this is not just about you. This is about me too. Let us all fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. If you have a new international version in front of you, it says, let us be careful. That's not a good translation. The word is fear. It's where we get our word phobia from. It means fear. But before we talk about that fear... What does it mean to fail to reach this rest? I mean, it's easy to look at that warning and say, you know, I'm going to make my whole sermon. Church, you better be good or you'll fail to enter that rest. You better obey God right. You better not mess up anymore or you won't enter that rest. We have to let the author of Hebrews define his own terms. He told us in the verse right before this one why the Israelites didn't enter the rest. Remember what it was? Unbelief. And then in verse 2 and 3, he says, For gospel, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united in obedience. Is that what it says? No, they were not united by faith with those who listen. And then he says, for we who have believed enter that rest. Unbelief is what kept them out of the rest. It kept them from entering the rest. And it's the same thing that keeps people from entering God's rest today. So the writer is saying, let us fear. But the fear he's talking about is not, oh, you better do good. The fear he's talking about is let us fear our own unbelief. Verse 19, chapter 3, talks about unbelief being the reason. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4 talks about unbelief being the reason. And verse 1, stuck right in the middle of those two passages, you can't make that mean something else. He's talking about unbelief. Let us fear our own unbelief. We should fear our own hearts not believing the gospel and the promises of God as we walk through the wilderness of this fallen world. You with me? 
<laughs> that was a lot quieter than the last time I asked. <laughs> Why? Why do we fear that? Because only by faith will we persevere to the end. The Hebrew Christians are tempted to go back to Judaism and turn away from Christ because of the persecutions and the trials that they were enduring. Listen, they were weighing whether this gospel is worth all the costs that they're having to pay. So the writer says, you better fear that kind of unbelief in your heart. You better fear that kind of unbelief cropping up in your heart. You should fear when Jesus and the gospel don't seem worthy to you of the earthly cost of following him. The writer is telling these Christians, you guys are afraid of facing hardships and trials and persecutions and enduring all this for Jesus' name. What you should be afraid of is this unbelief that's manifesting itself in your heart. You should fear that you don't truly believe the gospel you say you believe. And this persecution, this trials, these hardships is really just revealing what's truly in your heart. Now, the, the fear here, fear is a strong word. And... And we bristle against the word fear just a little bit, against the idea that, that fear is a good thing or it's a good way to live. I mean, doesn't the Bible say God has not given us a spirit of fear? Doesn't God continually say, don't be afraid, I am with you? Of course he does. Of course it does. God's command not to be afraid, his many commands not to be afraid are because he's calling us to trust in him. Unbelief in our hearts should cause us to fear. That's his point. The Bible calls us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Romans eleven twenty tells us as Gentiles who've been grafted into the tree of Israel that we should not become proud but fear. There is a right kind of fear that's holy and healthy. So what does that fear look like? What is this that he's actually commanding us to do in verse 1? To fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It's not a terror that we're, you know, one wrong motive in my heart or one wrong action or one wrong misstep or one sin is going to send me careening away from God into eternal judgment. No, we believe the Bible teaches eternal security. We said it over and over again. If you don't believe that, come talk to me. Bring your Bible with you. We have his promises. The fear talked about here isn't walking around on eggshells all of your life afraid that, that by some technicality that you don't realize or, or some wrong action or wrong motive or, or, or something in your life that you can't put your finger on, all of a sudden you're going to miss everything. No, the person who fears failing to enter his rest is a person who knows how weak and deceitful their own hearts are and they do what Hebrews has been telling us to do for three chapters. They watch over their hearts. They watch over their hearts and put their hope in the gospel. Remember, let the author of Hebrews define his own terms. What does it look like to fear failing to reach God's rest? He hasn't changed the subject from chapter three. What it looks like to fear failing to enter is a person who is taking care, brothers, keeping watch over your hearts and exhorting one another daily as long as it's called today so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what it looks like. So let me give an example. When you feel pain in your body, you don't know where it's coming from, it's healthy to be fearful that something might be wrong with you. 
But if that is a fear that, that is just a, a paralyzing terror that causes you just to curl up into a ball on the floor and do nothing, that's not a good fear. A healthy fear, when you feel pain in your body, what does it do? It drives you to the doctor to get it diagnosed and start treatment to get it corrected. When you see unbelief in your heart, the person that fears, when they see unbelief or they see disobedience in their life, the fear of that, what does it do? It drives them to the Savior, not away from Him. They don't say, well, I don't think Jesus is enough. You know, I need, I, I guess I need to turn away and go back to the old life. No, the fear of failing to reach his rest, the Holy Spirit's conviction drives you to Jesus, not away from him. Amen. And only he can remedy that in your heart. That's what living with a healthy fear of unbelief looks like. So we fear unbelief in our hearts. So what do we do? We keep watch. What he tell, told us to do in chapter 3. We keep our hearts grounded in his word. That's what he meant by take care, brothers, and exhort one another daily so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That fear doesn't destroy our assurance in God's saving promises. It confirms them because the Holy Spirit who lives in every believer is growing us in faith and growing us in repentance. When we do sin or we do see unbelief in our hearts, which we do, we don't say, oh, well, you know, don't matter. Praise God, eternal security. No, we run to the cross and say, God, remove this from me. Help me. I need you. I, I, I can't change my heart. I need you to do this. That is the healthy fear. So the writer is saying to these Hebrews, listen guys, don't fear what man can do to you. Don't fear the one who can destroy the body. Don't fear these persecutions you're enduring, these hardships, these trials, all these hardships of this life. You fear God and fearfully guard your heart against your own unbelief. That's what you should fear. And then he turns to explain this rest that he's been talking about in the next section. Second part of verse 3 says this. As he has said, as I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, it's kind of dense. Let's take it apart a piece at a time. Second part of verse 3 is, and he says, as I swore, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's quoting, once again, the last part of Psalm 95, which he quoted, we read earlier in chapter 3. But here, he isn't just reiterating the warning. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The reason he quotes this is to emphasize those last two words, my rest it is God's rest. God himself still has a rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then he says, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And here he quotes Genesis 2-2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, meaning Psalm 95, which he just quoted, they shall not enter my rest. So to illustrate what God means by my rest, 
The writer of Hebrews goes back to creation. And he says on the seventh day after creating the universe, the Bible says God rested and everything was good. Now, now God's resting doesn't mean that God's no longer working. He's no longer active as if, you know, after, whoo, after six days of creation, you know, God's just really tired and just can't do anything else. No, God didn't need to rest after creating. He rested because the work was finished. It was completed and it was perfect. Everything was the way that it was supposed to be. And he said it was very good. So once God completed the work of creation, he rested. And his purpose from the very beginning of scripture was that his people would be with him in that rest forever. With everything the way that it should be in a perfect creation. And of course you know the story. Sin damaged that perfection. And that's the reason for the gospel. The reason Jesus came to die and redeem us from sin and from the curse of the fall. To bring us into right relationship with God. That we would dwell with him in a restored creation for all eternity. So ultimately God's rest is a place of perfection and peace and joy without sin. Tribulation where his people enjoy fellowship with him. It's a rest that will be perfectly fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. But the promise of that rest is available for you now, today. He says this in the next three verses. He says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. He's talking about God's Sabbath rest. Since, there, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, Psalm 95, so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. You see what he's saying? The writer again references Psalm 95, what we just quoted. David wrote Psalm 95 saying, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Hundreds of years after Israel failed to enter the land, yet in David's day when he wrote Psalm 95, the Holy Spirit still offered the people rest. There is a rest that is still available to you today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The true rest promised by God is still available. So the question is really, how do we enter this Sabbath rest of God? We have already been told multiple times in these two chapters. We do so by faith. The promise of entering God's rest is available to you today, right now, today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Verses 6 through 8 want... He, he wants his readers to realize the Sabbath rest talked about in the Exodus generation remains available to you today. It's God's rest. It wasn't fulfilled in Joshua's day when they went into the land. It wasn't fulfilled in David's day when he penned Psalm 95. Listen, how could David say, if you hear his voice, don't harden his heart if it was already fulfilled? The promise of rest remains today. And so that's why he says, let us fear not entering his rest. Let's recognize what this rest is. And then finally, I want to take verses, verses 9 and 10 actually go with this point, but I'm going to discuss them in the next one where he tells us to strive to enter God's rest. 
He says, so then, this is really the conclusion of the previous point. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That's the conclusion of the previous point. Then he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, at first glance, these two sentences seem to contradict one another. Way back in verse 3, he told us, we who have believed enter this rest. Now in verse 10, he says, whoever enters God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. And then in verse 11, he turns around and says, okay, so now get to work. Strive to enter this rest. Well, well, which is it? Do we enter this rest of God by faith or by striving? Listen, you need to understand, we all need to understand, God's rest spoken of from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to 4, 11, is both a reality right now and something coming in the future. It's an already and not yet. Let me explain to you what I mean. Right now, when we trust in Jesus, we rest. We rest from striving to be right with God. We rest from our works uh, uh, in, in the sense that we need to work to be right with God. When we are born again in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we lay claim to the promised inheritance because Jesus paid it all. When we're born again, indwelled by the Spirit, we enter by grace through faith alone. There's nothing more that you can add, nothing more that you can do to secure the promise and the inheritance. It is yours and nothing can take that away. We rest right now in the promises of the gospel. However, God's rest is also future as well. Because as you know, as well as I do, and these Hebrews knew, We haven't ceased from our labors yet in this world. The curse brought with it toil. It brought strife and hardship and sin and suffering and enemies to to be faced. We've not yet been freed from the presence of sin in our our own lives and all around us. We've not yet been freed from the flesh and and the presence of of Satan's temptations and, and the world around us. There is still hardship and trials and suffering and persecution that we have to endure. Paul said through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But there is coming a day... When we will have perfect rest, no longer harassed and tormented by suffering and sin and Christ's enemies in this fallen creation. There's coming a rest that will be perfect, in perfect communion with God. No more suffering, no more sin, no more hardship, no more curse of the fall. And we will have rest in the presence of God in every sense of the word. We won't just have the promise of it, which is true and in which we can rest. We will have it fulfilled completely and we will truly rest from all of our toil in this cursed creation. We'll no longer live by faith. Our faith will be made sight. And we will see him as he is. His name will be on our foreheads. There will be no more night for the former things have passed away. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more curse. So yes, 
We who have believed, who've trusted in Christ, been born again, we enter that rest. It is our possession. It is our inheritance. We are new creatures. The kingdom of God is is born inside of us and we walk in it. But we walk in it through the trials and the sufferings of this fallen wilderness still. But there's coming a perfect rest. And we enter that rest, which is to come. So the writer says, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by the same sort of disobedience. Now the problem, the problem with the way that we read our Bibles is that we read a verse like this and we try to interpret it in our own minds outside of the context Hebrews has given us. People take verse 11 and say, well, look, there it is right there. Let us therefore strive to enter his rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It says, you disobey, you lose entry into the rest. Once again, you must allow the writer of Hebrews to define his own terms. The same sort of disobedience. What does the same sort mean? It means the same sort of disobedience he's been talking about since chapter 3, verse 7. The wilderness generation. That's the example he's used all through this passage. The same sort. Why did the wilderness generation not enter into his rest? Unbelief. He told us just now, Israel's disobedience in the wilderness was caused by their unbelief. They did disobey. They disobeyed a lot, many times, but it was a symptom of the real problem. That has been his point since chapter 3. The trials in the wilderness did not turn Israel away from believing. It showed they never really believed. Even as they came out of Egypt singing and praising God, Even as they were delivered at the Red Sea. Even as they were led by this miraculous pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. Even as they stood at the base of Mount Sinai and said, God, we will be in covenant with you. They did not trust God. They just enjoyed the blessing of what was happening. They never trusted God. They they, they were just happy that all this good stuff was happening to them. Sure, let's go. This is the same sort of disobedience he's talking about in the wilderness generation. It's unbelief caused by an unbelieving heart. So the big question is, okay, how do we strive to enter rest then? What are we to do? We're to do what he's been calling us to do for three chapters. Guard your hearts from unbelief. Go to war against unbelief when you see it, the seed of it in your own heart, so that it won't lead you to disobedience. He has banged this drum all through these chapters over and over and over again. In chapter 2, verse 1, pay closer attention to what you've heard. In chapter 2, verse 3, fix your eyes. Consider Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 1, don't harden your heart if you hear his voice. In chapter 3, verse 8, take care. Watch that an unbelieving heart won't be in you. In chapter 3, verse 12, exhort one another daily so we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And in the first verse of this chapter, let us fear failing to enter his rest, surrounded by two verses that talk about unbelief. Do you think now in verse 11 he's changed the subject? The professing Hebrew Christians are suffering 
They're being persecuted because they confess Jesus. And just like Israel in the wilderness, they're being tempted to turn back to Egypt. They're asking, is it really worth it? Is this hardship and this persecution and this trial really worth keeping on following Jesus? The writer's warning them, those who turn away from Christ reveal they have not trusted in the gospel. He's calling them to examine their hearts. He's like a pastor preaching before a congregation. He, He doesn't know who's saved and who's lost. He's just warning the entire group. Did you truly entrust yourself to Jesus Christ? Or did you just agree with a doctrine to gain the benefit of heaven? As long as the cost is not too high in this life. Make sure your heart is not like those Israelites who came out of Egypt, singing God's praises and claiming to be his people, but only as long as I don't have to go through any hardships. Salvation, church, is eternally secure in Christ by grace through faith alone. I told you last week, I'll die on that hill every time. But we also have to remember that true saving faith perseveres to the end. He's told us this repeatedly. Chapter 3, verse 6, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Chapter 3, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews is calling the reader to guard their hearts and to ground their assurance, which we have and do have, but to ground it in the only place that it can be found. Where is that? in Jesus and where do we find those truths in the word of God I thought about stopping in verse 11 because I knew I was going to go over but well I am going to go over so it don't matter I thought about stopping in verse 11 but I can't because verses 12 and 13 are part of this argument verse 11 told us if you have your Bible in front of you strive to enter that rest So that we won't fall by the same sort of disobedience, meaning as the Exodus generation. And then verse 12 says, for because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Y'all know that verse. We've heard that many times. Probably heard a lot of sermons. You're going to hear another one because I'm going to start right there next time we preach Hebrews. My question is, why is this here? Why? It seems like this comes out of nowhere. He's been talking about Israel in the wilderness and unbelief and hearts being hardened and just that whole episode from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way all the way to verse 11 of chapter 4. And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, just because the word of God is a living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. How does these two verses apply to what he's been saying? He's been telling us to guard our hearts and compare our turning away to the wilderness generations turning away. Why break off into an explanation of God's word? If you have your Bible open, right, right next to these two verses, write Numbers 15, verses 42 through 43. Numbers 15, verses 42 through 43. After Israel refused to go into the land, 
You know, 12 spies, all that. They said, we're not going. They're standing on the doorstep of the promised land. And they said, we're not going. God said, okay. Turn around and go out into the wilderness. I'm going to send you to the wilderness for 40 years. You know what the people said then? The wilderness. Oh, no, 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 no. We're sorry. We'll go on into the land. We, we didn't really mean it. Now, of course, the people didn't trust God still, but the consequences of going into the wilderness were now worse than the risk of going into the land. So when God says, no, I'm sending you out in the wilderness, they said, oh, no, 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 we were just kidding. We're just kidding. We'll go into the land. And Moses, God sends Moses to them, and Moses tells them this. In Numbers 15, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verses 42 and 43, this is, this is Moses speaking to the people. They said, we're going. He says, do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you. Look at it. And you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. You See what he's saying? The writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The people in Israel presumed, the, the very next verse, I should have put verse 44 up there, because the very next word says, but they presumed to go. The people presumed to go up into the land anyway, though they didn't truly believe. They presumed that they were God's people. They presumed God was with them. They presumed that they had all of these promises when God told them, no, no, don't go. And they were judged by the sword. And he says here, after all of this explanation of Israel in the wilderness and don't turn away from Christ and watch your heart and make sure it's not hardened, he says, because God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, God's word is the judge. He says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The, the point he's making is that we must judge our hearts and our lives and our assurance by the word of God. Because our assurance must be based on what God says, not what you say, not what Jason says, what God says. You will give an account to the one who knows your heart. God tells us what he does in believers when he saves a soul. He tells us what he will do in your heart, in your life. Our assurance can't be based on how we feel or how we felt when we prayed a prayer or our hearts at all because they're deceitful and they're prone to sin. He's told us to watch our hearts all through this section. Our hearts are deceitful. But look at what he says. The word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Our assurance must come from what God has said, not what we think, not what my feelings say, not even what grandma told me. That's how we strive to enter into that rest. That's how we guard our hearts, keep watch over our hearts against unbelief. And our assurance must be based on everything God has said. We can't cherry pick the good promises and ignore all the warnings. Let me give you an example. I want to make this very clear because I, I fretted a lot last week and this week and feared a lot and prayed a lot. 
because there's a lot in this text and there's a lot that could, you know, potentially come out of my mouth that could be misunderstood and misapplied. So I want you to hear me and hear me very clearly. We know the Bible teaches if you are born again, the spirit of God indwells you, you are eternally secure in your salvation. The Bible loudly proclaims that. The good shepherd, Jesus said, doesn't lose any of his sheep. They are eternally secure, and eternal security is a biblical doctrine. I'd love to discuss it with you if you want. John 10, 28 is where Jesus is talking about his sheep. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Jesus' sheep will never perish. Doesn't say, well, it's possible that they won't perish. Just depends. They will never perish. And look, no one can snatch them out of my hands. That is a glorious assurance, isn't it? We can rest in the promise of God. Jesus secured that promise. And by grace, through faith alone, a sinner is justified and eternally secure in the salvation of Jesus Christ. But as you grab on to that promise in John 10, 28, and you make it your own, and you ground your assurance in it, and you ground your heart in it, don't forget verse 27 comes before verse 28. And he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and look what they do. They follow me. So if you, if you're, if you don't follow Jesus at all in your life, verse 28 ain't applying to you. You understand? We must take all of God's word and we can rest in his promises. But we have to examine our hearts by his word. We have to examine our lives by his word. Those who are Jesus' sheep follow Jesus. Those who are eternally secure and rest in his promise. If eternal security is not real, none of us go into heaven. But they follow Jesus. Our assurance is in the promise of God. It's in the word of God. It's in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the evidence of that promise, the evidence of God's work is in our lives, in our hearts. God tells us what he does in those who he saves. So we're called, when he says, let us fear and then let us strive, we're called to examine our hearts, to keep watch over our hearts. How? By the truth of God's word. That's what he's calling these Hebrews to do that are thinking about turning away from Christ. You're thinking about turning away from Jesus. Examine yourself. Take care. Exhort one another daily that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our assurance is in the word of God. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Who are you following? Examine yourself today. Take care lest there be any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Trust in Jesus. Entrust yourself to Jesus. And those promises will be yours. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that you use your word and you just bring clarity to our souls, clarity to our hearts. Um, God, I just ask that you would ground us in the assurance of your word and that you would show us what you have said. Ultimately, ultimately, 
what I say doesn't make any difference. God, I pray that you would just illuminate your text for the people in this room. If I've preached it wrongly, if I've misapplied it, God, I, I pray that they would just take what is said in that word and that they would apply it to their hearts. I pray that your spirit would come and that you would show us what you would have us to do. There may be some in here today who have presumed upon your promises, though there's no evidence that your fruit is in them at all. God, I pray that you would bring them to repentance, that you would bring them, bring them to faith, trusting in Jesus. God, there may be others in here who are believers and are just struggling with assurance. God, I pray that you would reveal the truth of your promises to them. And that they can stand on those promises. God, I pray that you would just do a work in our hearts. That you would save souls. That you would grow us as your disciples. And that you would grow your kingdom to glorify your name. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As always, I want to stand right down here. Right after we pray to close the service, we're going to have a quick vote for the budget. So if you're a member, please stay seated. But if you want to come, I'd love to talk to you.